All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I'm Dean. I'll be your, I'll be your host and your guide tonight. And tonight, we got a very interesting show. We're going to take a peek behind the curtain of one of the most nightmarish scenarios for any working police officer is how you deal with, with an, an issue in which you have to take the ultimate action against somebody and take a life in the line of duty. We'll be joined by recently retired Sergeant John Callagher. So I'm going to go ahead and bring John up. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Dean. Thanks for having me. It's 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 an honor uh, to have you on the show and and to have you share this experience. This is not the type of ex, uh, experience that people hear about very often, and there's a lot of weird myths and and just untruths about the mindset of a police officer if and when they actually have to take a life in the line of duty. And it's important that we dispel some of those rumors and we talk about the human side of of having to take a decisive action like that tonight. Absolutely, bro. And that's that's why I'm happy to be here to share the experience. Uh, you know, the good, the bad, the 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 details, the aftermath. I mean, there's a lot to it. Um, and, and I'm happy to take any questions you have or or anybody listening has. Well, before we get started, let's talk about something pleasant. You've re you're recently retired. How long have you been retired? It's been just over two months. Um, it's it's not what I expected. It's it's I don't recommend it because it's like waking up a, a Saturday every day. You know, you don't have to go to work nights, weekends, holidays anymore. No more snowstorms. No being forced over sixteen hour shifts. Uh, no no more dealing with some of the difficult issues that we deal with. But no, it's it's been it's been amazing. And I would just say that on a personal note, my mom's been in hospice care for three months and it's given me a great opportunity to be able to be there for her uh, and, and help her in her final days. So for that reason, the timing was perfect. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. Um, I've been there. Uh, it, you know, obviously, once you get to the hospice step, it's uh, there's usually no coming back from that. And I, I really appreciate you understanding the gravity of the situation and, and I'm, and I'm happy that you're able to be there uh, during these difficult times, John, it's, it's, it's so important. And, um, and you'll feel good about it when, uh, when time moves on. Thank you, bro. Thank you for your words. All right. So let's talk about your, your, your situation. So tell us what happened, where you work and talk, walk us through the day, John, if you could. So, so Dean, so I, I retired from Westboro. It's where I started my career when I was uh, 19 years old as a mm -hmm. part-timer. I got hired nine months later. Uh, again, dream, dream job. I had that dream as a young boy. And at 20 years old, I, that opportunity came true in my hometown. Um, spent six years in patrol, spent three years working undercover, one with the state police, uh, you know, buying narcotics all over the state. I went back to patrol for a couple of years, got promoted to sergeant and had that rank for the last uh, 21 years of my career. <clears throat> I had a four year stint in the DB as a detective sergeant and my career ended three years working with the DEA again in an undercover capacity. And ironically, Dean, as, as I told you before, you know, I was primarily in plain clothes my last three months. And that Friday, November 15, 2019, um, I got called back to work a uniform day shift because it, it was just a situation they needed me. So it wasn't even a scheduled shift. So it was an overtime shift, right, essentially? It was just a shift that I would have been assigned to DEA. Again, I was up there full time, but they said, hey, if, if they can free you up for the day, we really could use you. And I said, yeah, uh, they were good enough to do that. Um, and so, it, again, it wouldn't I would have been with them. But ironically, I got sent back to my hometown to, to help out the hometown crowd. Understood. So you're back, you're working this shift, and, and let's face it, there's definitely an adjustment. People think that, you know, that all cop jobs are the same. It's just like any other business, like different aspects of a business. It requires you to kind of get your sea legs underneath you again and get used to being out there again. So tell us, walk us through the beginning of the shift. You start with a roll call, yes? Start with a roll call, yeah. And Dean, and just to preface, so the, the two weeks before with DEA, we were doing what was called a surge across the country. And we, a lot of agencies were wrapping up a, a number of major cases. So we were doing search warrants and taking people off. You know, in fact, the night before we had taken someone off of Worcester. They tried to run. Um, you know, it was a hectic situation. We had to, you know, 
uh, make a forcible entry in an apartment, doing a search warrant until 11 o'clock at night. You know, and then the next day I'm saying, I'm gonna work a day shift, my hometown, it was a beautiful Friday. Uh, I get to see everybody in uniform. And I came in like I do every single day. I come in, I would square my boots away so they were polished, strap the, strap the vest on, put the, the belt on. You know, and when I did my mindset throughout my career, when I did those things, it was like I came to work, it was business. I came into professional mode. But roll calls usually loose with me, cover the major things, but keep it on a friendly level, um, you know, kind of give everybody their assignment and go out. You know, it, again, on a Friday afternoon, I was going to see different people I hadn't seen, stop in and, and uh, get breakfast at my favorite place and uh, just make a few stops and see people I hadn't seen quite some time uh, in uniform. So you're on your way. All right. You, you have this mental checklist like we all do. You know, like, again, I don't, I don't run shifts very often either. I am administrative now, but every once in a while I'll uh, I'll work a patrol shift and I'll same thing. You know, like you have your roll call and you're thinking about you have a plan in your head as to what you want to do and people you want to see. When did that go off the rails? So, Dean, the, the call comes in. So it's I can tell you again, and and, and I've mentioned to you uh, prior to doing this, this uh, webcast tonight. That this, I think about this incident every single day, and I don't necessarily mean it in a bad way, but it's just because of the seriousness of it. It's, I think that's just what it's going to be um, throughout my life. But it's, it's about 12:05, 12:10 on a beautiful Friday afternoon in Westboro. You know, upper middle class town, uh, low crime. Fortunately, our guys and gals do a great job. I was actually going to stop into a jeweler. I was having a problem with my watch. I was going to have him check out my watch. I was in uh, West Coast Shopping Center at 33 Lyman Street. I'm driving by Home Goods. I know exactly where I was. You know, as I talk, I can envision ex exactly where I was. The radio cackles, which is normal during the day. Um, two other units were called, and the call came in as a report of a, a woman that was stabbed in the arm by her husband. All right, so you hear that over the radio. Obviously, you're going from community policing, hello, kissing baby, shaking hands mode to now you're, you're transitioning into your warrior mindset. Talk us through that a little bit. So, you know, when things come over like that, Dean, I think it's because of, a, you know, many years of experience. At that time, I had 31 years. I've had a lot of experience. Uh, I've, I've handled a lot of serious calls. And again, I always go in with the same mindset, a mindset that was instilled in me in the police academy or in any trainings I've ever had, you know, uh, mental preparedness. There's no call that shakes me up over the air and I'm not Superman. It's just the way I prepared myself mentally. And when I heard that call, like any other serious, serious call, which we get infrequently, you know, I said to myself, is there something else that maybe that's happening? Maybe it was an accident. And within seconds, it was that sixth sense as a seasoned police officer. And I said, it's not, this guy's trying to kill her. And I immediately turned on my lights and siren. I waited for the two initial officers to receive the call and say that they were en route. And then I jumped on the air uh, to say my call number was 147. I'm like, 147's a route. So you pull up on scene. What kind of setting was this in? Paint the picture for those of us that aren't familiar with this. Is Was this a residential neighborhood? Was it a desolate area? Was it um, well, was densely populated as it can be in in, uh, in a place like Westboro? Talk us through the neighborhood. So the, the call was in an apartment complex, and it was probably, I would say, about a mile and a half away from where I received the call. And people asked me, you know, how quick did you respond? I went as fast as I possibly could in, in a safe way. I was... You know, I, I was going as fast as I could to get there. I was there in a short amount of time, uh, maybe a, a minute. And as I got there, I wanted to, again, people have asked me, you know, over the past year and a half, were you nervous? What was going on? And all I say to them is, and I think in any of those calls, and I think most police officers, your, your, your senses are heightened. You're listening, seeing, your mind is, is just rapidly processing information. So no, I was not nervous. It was just, I'm sure there's, you know, the adrenaline's going. You just want to get there and then you want to assess the situation and do what, whatever's called for to, you know, to make, to bring this situation to a, a positive resolution. And I remember arriving and I remember calling my station saying, uh, you know, W, I'm, I'm at the complex. Is he still in the area? And just for clarification purposes, W is what you call your dispatch center? 
That's the communication center, yes. Okay, all right. So and they, they answered right back. Uh, they, they gave me an update. They said he was initially, she had, there was an initial uh, attack of the suspect on the victim, uh, a knife attack. We had stabbed her. She, at some point, I think, created a ruse and was able to escape him to a, a neighbor's apartment in a, in a very, you know, multiple, multiple unit complex, you know, hundreds and hundreds of units. And all they said to me was he was at the front door of the neighbor's apartment that she had escaped to and he was naked. So, you know, to me, in my mind, I said it should be pretty easy to find once I find that apartment, if I see a naked guy standing in front of the door. Uh, yeah, you would think so. But, you know, obviously that adds another layer um, to the cake as well. You, you have some, you have a this rapidly devolving situation and then you add in the no clothes factor as well and then and and just to paint a picture for those of you that aren't in this line of work um that is usually a sign that there's something else going on beyond just somebody being angered what be it some sort of substance abuse or some sort of mental health um type scenario as well would you agree dean completely agree you know and another thing i want to try to paint a picture this is a complex like many i grew up in west pro um, I worked there my whole career. I'm very familiar with, you know, almost every aspect of the town. It's a complex I've been to many, many times over the year, both uh, socially with friends and professionally uh, for more mundane calls, domestics, uh, noise complaints, things like that. And like a lot of apartment complex, and again, for any police officers out there, I, I, I want you to really pay attention to this because I think it's something we need to talk to managers of these complexes to try to get them to get the signage so it's it's very clear to medical personnel or police when we're responding to situations like this where seconds count. I pulled in, Dean, and the number that was given to me where the, where the incident was occurring, it wasn't readily apparent exactly where to go. And by uh, fortune, uh, I, I took a right, which was the right way to go. And it was a total guess. You just kind of went by feel, right? Like you just kind of let the situation guide you. I looked at the initial numbers and, you know, I'm not a big religious person. I'm someone that you usually would find me in a church for a wedding or a funeral. But I think something else was in play that day. I'll, I'll, I'll put a couple of the facts that I experienced. I actually spoke to my mom's pastor and said, uh, said to him that a word I've used over the last year and a half describing this incident was divine intervention. And I have to say that if people of faith and even myself, I've had faith maybe new newfound faith, but I think there was some type of divine intervention. And, and I'll, I'll point out those points. But yeah, I, I think that played a role in me taking a right, and then I was taking a, a left up a hill. Again, it was the right way to go, unbeknownst to me. So that brings us to the next point. So now you somehow you found this general area where this is going on. What do you see when you pull up on scene to the general area? So again, I'm in the general area, but what I hear is, as I'm, as I'm starting up this hill in the complex, I now get as if you don't have enough pressure on you and you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, just again, wanting to, you know, the thing I have described to people is wanting to get into the arena to make a difference. I'm like, give me an opportunity to do what I was trained to do, uh, you know, to intervene. And just give me a minute here. Uh, we're with you, brother. Take your time. <clears throat> so the next thing I hear on the radio is the suspect is, is that trying to break through a glass door with a weight. I know these units. I know the back doors are sliding glass doors. So now the pressure's on. And what I don't realize is as I'm driving by, I'm driving by the would-be apartment, which I don't know. And I'm looking to my right, looking for a man trying to break through a glass window. And I don't know as he's already broken through and continued his attack. And it's all right, JK. It's all right. I get to the top of the complex and it was a decision to go to the opposite side of the complex which didn't make sense. And it didn't even really make sense to go back the way I came, but for some reason I went back the way I came. And when I did, I happened to see a maintenance person, I believe the only one working that day, 
that I've never seen when I've been in that complex, but happened to be walking across, turns out right in front of the building. And I stopped, I, I gave him the number I was looking for for the apartment and he pointed towards the building and said, it's here. And I literally uh, ran up like 10 feet. I was now still at the driveway and I looked and as I did, I saw a group of about five or six people had just come out the door of the neighbor's apartment. And I could hear them yelling, he's stabbing her, he's stabbing her. And I, I see the suspect as they're saying that, I immediately, I run up to the situation, I'm probably 30 feet away, so I'm trying to close distance. And I see him stab her. You saw him? Saw him stab her in the chest. He's pressed against her. And there was, there was probably, I, I, I say three, maybe there was more, but I believe about three uh, spectators that were trying to intervene. And I remember closing distance and to just to give people a sense of the time frame, when they came out that door to where I saw what was going on, there's eight to 10 seconds until my first shot is fired. So I run up, I'm probably, I would say seven to 10 feet away. The Dean, you know how we train, we're shooting at metal targets or paper. And we try to simulate a scenario like this and try to have sirens going or lights to, to simulate the craziness. Um, and this was just a situation that was just, um, just it, like worst case scenario because the, the, the distance, I, I realized immediately, I told him three times to drop his weapon and he was not listening to me. He never looked at me. He was looking straight through her. I described to people that I saw evil that day. And it was readily apparent to me, there was no reasonable alternative. It was that situation you trained and prepared for throughout your career. There was no reasonable alternative. I realized that it was her life or I needed to take, take measures to, uh, to stop the attack. I knew I was gonna have to shoot him and use my, you know, my service weapon for the first time in my career. So I looked at the backdrop, I saw the people, I looked at my window that I was, had to, you know, to try to make my shots and it was just a not, it was probably a six inch window. It was, it was just a terrible situation. And at some point, and I didn't know this initially, I learned it uh, through the investigation. And it's because he, he opened himself up and made himself more of a target. I didn't understand why, again, from my initial recollection, but from talking to troopers afterward that investigated the incident, they shed a light, I guess. I said to, there was a person right behind him and I, I told him, I go, get back, get back. And when I did, the suspect opened his body up and I was able to let four rounds go as he continued to run probably 10 or 15 feet to my right. And fortunately, all four rounds hit him. Uh, he fell to the ground. Um, and it was at that point I realized he had, he had two knives in his hands and he had also been stabbing her in the back, which I didn't realize initially. JK, um, again, just to con continue to paint the picture here if I would now you said he ran now was he running towards you away from you what what direction was he running so again he's probably seven to ten feet away he's probably you know as I'm looking at this camera he's probably he's now when he opened himself up the initial shots are fired and he continues to run to, to the right hand side I think at that point you know he realized um I, I think he was trying to flee and, and realized you know he's got a knife I had a gun in uh, the first, I don't know where the first shots hit or, or how bullets hit, it, you know, and I, I've watched some videos over the years and people have asked me, you know, why do police officers shoot so many times? Why can't you shoot them in the leg? You know, and, and I'm trying to, and I hope uh, effectively paint the scenario that it, it is not that easy. It's easy to second guess a Monday morning quarterback and wonder why. And I had never been in a shooting. And sometimes I've asked myself that question. Why'd they shoot them five times or six times? This person was in an absolute rage. They were in a psychotic state. They were intent on doing what they were, what he was intending to do. He was intending to kill that woman. And shooting him four times, two of them I learned later were, 
I, I, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it, but they were, they were kill shots that they hit vital organs that they ultimately um, uh, let him meet his demise medically. Uh, the other shot, one was in the shoulder, two were in the chest again, um, at center mass, and one was in the stomach, but he didn't drop for 10 or 15 feet as he ran. You know, and even when he landed on his back, I remember I was standing again with some distance, probably seven, 10 feet away, ordering him to drop his knife. And he did in his right hand, so he was still responsive. Um, I remember then seeing the knife in his left hand, and I said, drop that knife, you know? And then I noticed his eyes roll back in his head. He didn't respond to that. So I realized that he probably wasn't in control of his body anymore. Um, I noticed a bullet hole, which I'd never seen, you know, in his shoulder. Um, but you're not as the gravity of the things I'm telling you, firing shots or seeing some of the bullet hole with knives. You don't feel the effects of that, Dean. You're just you're doing what you're trained to do. You're in professional mode. It's like business at hand. Let's let's get it done. I kicked the knife out of a second hand. I knew immediately I had to cuff him to make sure he wasn't a threat anymore and cuffed him up. I'm I'm blown away, JK. I just want to take a second here and just talk about the power of you sharing this. Um, we have a, a gentleman who's who's watched a couple of shows. Jim will just want to say um, that he knows and he'll think about his OIS. And for those of you at home, OIS is officer involved shooting shift, and he thinks about it every day as well. He went on to say that uh, he thanks you for sharing your story with with uh, with people so that they may have a better understanding of what the totality of the experience really is. And um, I, I, I echo that sentiment, JK. This is, um, this is unbelievable what you're, what you're sharing with us tonight. And, and, and I thank you for that. So from there, you make a radio transmission. I don't even realize if you know what you did. I think I have it here. I'm going to try to try to play this. Um, so stand by. All right. So I know it might have been a little difficult to hear there. So that the one that the one that you played is my final transmission. There was one right after the incident. And again, Dean, this goes to, you know, it's one thing I've tried to share with every police officer that that want, wants to hear the story, uh, because I, I think there's definitely lessons to be learned. Um, again, I, I couldn't thank my instructors over the years from academy instructors to DT instructors and, and, and mentors over the course of my career that, that prepared me mentally and physically to, to deal with what I dealt with. My, my body, my mind, my thinking, I was in cruise control because of all that, all that training and many, many years of experience. Um, and, and I can't thank those people enough. It's, I just a few things I want to get out too. It's it's the most humbling experience that I've ever probably will feel. I that I, I felt in my life until this point, and I can't see anything uh, humbling me anymore. And I just gratitude is the second thing again for all that training, all the experience that prepared me for worst case scenario, split second decision moment, um, and fortunately. Uh, bullet placement, the right, uh, you know, to stop the suspect, not hit any of the bystanders or the, the that that poor victim, uh, excuse me, survivor. Um, you know, I, I just I want to make sure everybody knows it's uh, there was a number of people that played a role that day and not just me. Um, you know, I've been acknowledged many times. You know, I, I was acknowledged with Medal of Valor. It was a great ceremony put on by my chief, my deputy, my lieutenant, my PD. Um, I was so humbled. And it's just, it gives me an opportunity to thank the unsung heroes, the communications people, Pamela Lando, Mary and Silva that were, and Dean, you've heard the call. The dispatchers were phenomenal. I don't oh. know if they, I hope they're watching. They were unbelievable how calm they, they stayed. Just unbelievable under extreme circumstances. They were calm. You know, you hear their voices when, when you hear uh, the, the 911 call is saying, uh, shots fired, or he says, you know, he's been shot, he's been shot. And you can hear the voice, I think it was Marianne, you know, we, we know each other, we've worked with each other for years saying, Who, who's been shot? And you can hear the emotion in her voice. 
realizing there's nothing she could do but listen to an event that she's not in control of. And they have to go through that emotion. Uh, it's an unsung job. It's, you know, uh, those, those poor dispatchers get beaten up by, you know, not by me, by a lot of the police officers. We're always critiquing them. We want things a certain way. But they really do a phenomenal job, and especially in this case, uh, you know, under extreme pressure. Um, again, thanks goes out to that, that female survivor. Had she not created a ruse, had she not escaped, had she not created distance and fought this guy off, had those, had those neighbors not been home, which a lot of people weren't during the day, uh, had they not been home and, and uh, allowed her to seek refuge, putting themselves at grave risk for doing so, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for me, Dean, to do my job and do what I was trained to do. That, that's amazing, John. Um, so talk about the transition from warrior to now your healthcare provider at that point. So you're providing care after, after the incident. Talk about that a little bit. So when he secured Dean, as you can imagine, it is, it, it, the, the, it's, it's such that the situation I literally, once I knew he was down, once I knew he was handcuffed and no longer a threat, I'd kick the knives away from him. In hindsight, I probably should have taken him, but it's just, everything's happening so quick. I didn't know if he'd still get up. It didn't appear he would, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, I immediately was thinking, where is, where is this poor woman? I ran, she was probably, I'd say 20, 25 feet away between where he went down and my cruiser. I immediately went to my, uh, my cruiser, got my medical bag. Um, she had, I believe was a face cloth over her wounds on her chest, trying to control the bleeding. At that point, I realized that that was probably best option to, to control the bleeding. I, I assessed the wound. You know, uh, I made that radio call that you played earlier, trying to direct the ambulance when they came in to where we were and what was what what had happened. Uh, I think it was a few actually probably a few seconds after I had assessed her wounds and was basically I told people I was trying to coach her up. You know, she she had uh, some very serious wounds. I won't get into the specifics of it, but uh, not only to her chest, but also her back. And I just said to her, you're going to be OK. I know my fire department. I've worked with those guys for years. Um, I'm sure I'm biased, but I, I've said if I was ever hurt or needed medical care, I would drag myself over the town line into Westboro because they're the best of the best. And I knew if anyone was going to be able to treat her and keep her alive, it was them. And they were there, you know, people, again, they've asked how long. I'm like, it, it just seemed like minutes. I mean, it's like, I don't know if they were already in route around the corner. Um, but I remember seeing them rolling in the first bus, we'll call it. And they started unloading the first stretcher. And again, my adrenaline's pumping. And while, I, while I'm telling her, you're okay, you're gonna be okay, the ambulance will be here. As they got there, I picked her up and I ran her 20 feet over. And before they could get, I think the stretcher just came out, threw in the stretcher. And I think, you know, I was probably shook up the EMT or paramedic. I'm like, get this thing going, you know? And it was just, you're going hundred miles an hour. And you're like, you just are trying to sustain life. And your thought process is, let's go. You know, we don't have time. Get get her going. And then I think they get it. I think they get it. I think that you yeah. were probably amped up and maybe a little more colorful language in what you just described there. I think so. I think I, I, think I they get it. a few words that I, I, I try not to when I'm working, but a few of them flipped out. Um, and the next thing I remember, there was people, I believe one of the police officers, and the, the second unit was over at the suspect, and I saw him... Uh, doing CPR on him. And again, you know, for people that aren't police officers, we're, we're trained to go into, yes, I'm, I'm going to take care of the victim first and provide medical aid to her. But once she was sustained in the ambulance, the next focus was now the suspect, mm -hmm. you know, because now we have an obligation to make sure he's okay. As, as, as deviant as he was, as psychotic as he was, uh, knowing, you know, and he had the intent to me to kill her. It didn't matter. At that point, he was still a victim. Now we got to go to caretaker mode. And those those paramedics were on him. I, I think maybe they uncuffed him. Um, they were doing CPR. I know they were doing CPR. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure he was uncuffed, but I, I can't say for sure. And they loaded him on a bus and got him out just as quickly. You it's know? important so, that people say that, JK, I just want to interrupt. I yeah. just want to make sure that everybody understands that he they also rendered aid to the suspect at this point too. This wasn't just a, hey, you got what you deserved and, and lay there and bleed out. They immediately rendered aid because again, preservation of life is paramount. Correct, JK? That's correct. You know what, it's, Dean, it's not, 
you know, I say it and I try, you know, sometimes I, I'm saying things and it probably sounds so simple. And honestly, in those circumstances, because of the training, it's not like you had to think about it. it it's like you cuff them up, you take care of her, you get her on the ambulance. And the next thing is now we're going to take care of this guy. If we can provide CPR and keep him alive, then that's our job, despite what his actions were before. Um, you know, I didn't go into work that day, Dean. As, as police officers involved in violent, uh, involved violent encounters or fatal encounter like this, you don't go into work to hurt somebody. You know, we want to talk our way through every situation that's potentially violent or volatile, which 99% of the time we can. This was one of those situations, as I described it, that it rapidly evolved so quickly that there was no time to de-escalate. There was no reasonable alternative to reach to. It was a deadly force situation, situation no police officer wants to face, but fortunately we receive extensive training throughout our careers to face it. And, and fortunately I faced it with a, a positive outcome, as positive it could be because of all that training. By the way, those weren't tears earlier. I have bad allergies, so they, they may kick up at different portions in the show. Hi mom. I see my mom's online here. I said hi to my mom. She, I see her checking in. All right. So let's hit the chat. Let's see. Does anybody have any questions for JK out there? Let's go ahead and bring that up. You know, it's been, uh, you know, so there's one question. How has life been or what has life been like after an OIS? So, you know, people, again, I, there's such, there's, there's, a number of questions that, that come up all the time by people. And I don't know if they, they feel awkward asking them, but it's, they shouldn't because there's, there's a number of questions. And that's one of the reasons I want to be here to answer some of those things for police and, and for uh, non-police. The stress of the whole situation, I have to be honest with you, Dean, is number one, um, even though I know how this story ends, that, that woman survived in case I haven't made that clear. She mm -hmm. survived after suffering some very serious injuries and it was uh, because of the paramedics that rendered her their A plus aid from the scene to the hospital and to the unbelievable staff at UMass that, that, that kept her alive and sustained her. So, I mean, she, it could have gone the other way and she just had such unbelievable people taking care of her. So it's thinking about what she went through and watching someone fighting for their life and just watching evil that, that gets to me. And that, that's, part of the stretch, stress of it. So over the course of the last year and a half, there's times I'm driving or sitting at home and I get teared up and start crying. You know, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you know how the story ends, she survived. And I think, I wonder how her life is now and how she moves forward. And it just, it bothers you. You're, I'm a human being that happened to wear a uniform for 32 years, but that didn't define everything that I was. I'm a, I'm a person, I'm a son, I'm a brother. Um, I'm someone that brings a lot of compassion and empathy. I've brought to my career uh, to uh, many difficult situations and people that needed it. And so that bought, that that was is difficult to deal with. I still think about it every day. Um, another thing that's overwhelming and is the is the recognition. So sometimes you know our our profession could be a thankless job, and that's okay. We we don't do this for a pat on the back. You know, so when you get a thank you or you did a great job or you're, you're, you're at a place, someone buys you a coffee or says thank you for your service, it is so appreciated. It seems like small words, but we really do appreciate it. But when you have an incident like this, and I tell you, this is probably the most overwhelming thing, is the overwhelming support and people saying thank you, God bless you, you're a hero, you saved her life. You sure did. But Dean, I can tell you that maybe at some point in my career and other police officers think those are words that they want to hear, a hero, you save someone's life. And while I feel very fortunate and I'm so glad that, yes, her life was saved, I don't look at myself like that. I, I really don't. I don't say that for to minimize what I did. I feel like I'm a dedicated professional police officer, like many that I have worked with. And I, I go in every day to try to do a good job, or I did. I don't feel like a hero. I don't, you don't feel deserving of that recognition. And that would bring me to tears every time you hear it. And I was recognized 
Again, I told you a great uh, ceremony put on by, by my department. Uh, it was a Medal of Valor ceremony. And some people asked, you know, did the medal, did, was it about the medal? I'm like, no, it wasn't about the medal. The medals never left my dress uniform that remains in my locker. And it may never will. It wasn't about the medal. It was giving me an opportunity. That day gave me an opportunity to thank a number of people um, that influenced me in my career, influenced what happened that day, to thank them and to try to bring closure, um, you know, to, to, to the roller coaster of emotions that I still deal with. And, and I'm thankful for that ceremony, but that's what it was about. It's, it's, we don't, Police officers do not do things for medals. We don't do things to get a pat on the back, although it's nice every once in a while. That's not why you put on the uniform. And when you see, and, and, and Dean, you've been to many, I'm sure, police funerals over the years. When you see a police no. officer, we realize that when we go to work every day, we go to work to hopefully come home, but we are willing to lay everything down for people that we don't even know that may not even like us. And that's, it's just now as, as a retired person, I look at police officers when I see them and have so much respect for them. It's almost like I'm not one of them anymore. I'm not, but I look at them and I, I know what they're willing to do and the risk that they take and the emotion that goes into it, letting someone know a family member is not coming home, dealing with the number of death scenes that we deal with, um, dealing with difficult family situations where, where kids in situations with, parents with addiction or abuse. And those are the stresses of the job that you go home with because we empathize. A good police officer feels these situations. You take them into your heart and you go home at the end of the day and sometimes you're just shaking your head saying, I am so fortunate, the life that I have. And you just think about the very difficult circumstances that a lot of people that we deal with have. That's the stress of the job. Well, John, I'm going to clarify a couple things. First of all, you are a hero. And I know it might be embarrassing you, to you to hear that, but you are the, the definition of a hero. You acted. You saved a life. Someone is alive on, on today, and they are living their life however that life is going, but they, that life is happening because of you, the actions you took. It's important you realize that. That is... I... Again, Dean, I, I will. I, I thank you. As I thanked, I think every law enforcement person that reached out to me, every friend, you know, teachers, family members, and everyone says those words. And and you know, and I, I haven't really spoken to anybody else that's been in a similar situation to know how they feel because it's uncharted waters for me. I just know, um, you know, it, it is just it is it is so humbling and to be acknowledged. And there's, I have some future things, yeah, ceremonies we acknowledge for. It's going to be just as humbling, you know. And there are words that it, it's almost like a, I'm reading a script because I say the same things all the time. If you if you said the two big things I feel after this event, I feel grateful for training. I feel grateful for everybody that assisted that day and allowed me to do my job. And I am so humbled by the way things turned out and all the recognition that I received. And I say that as sincerely as I possibly can. And, and the second thing, JK, is you're absolutely still a cop. You're always a cop. You're always going to be part of this family. Anybody who puts in the type of time that you put in is always part of this family, and you're always part of the fabric that makes being a police officer such a great, noble profession. And you st sharing this story, hopefully there's people out there. Um, I'm hoping there's more people in the audience that are not police officers than are police officers because we, a lot of us, we know this. We know that nobody comes to work and wants, and their goal is to take someone's life. There's, there's, I'm obviously I can't say nobody, but the overwhelming majority of the majority of the majority don't want to do that. It goes just like you said, like you had a plan, you had your roll call, you kept it light, you were happy to see people, you had a plan in your head, people you wanted to see, businesses you wanted to visit, things you wanted to eat. Like that's how most of us 
think about their day. We have things that are going on at home, bills that have to be paid. Some of us that have kids, we're thinking about that. So it's important that people understand that this was not your plan. No, I mean, you know, really, I mean, Dean, I went in every day and I think most police officers have the same mentality. When, when we say we serve and protect, again, it, it sounds, it just sounds so simple, but we do. And, you know, to me, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate on that and say every single day, every time I had that, that uniform on throughout my career, it, it me, I'm a very social person. So it gave me an opportunity to build a bridge, to make a friend, to build a relationship with someone. There was sometimes I would, you know, I engage people that I don't know in that uniform. It was one, it was, it's one thing that's helpful about the uniform. You could talk to anybody. And sometimes people were surprised that you'd say something to them. But, and I would see people kind of looking at me like maybe they weren't big fans of the police, but there's been many people I've met, not just on the job, but off the job. When I told them I was a police officer in other states on vacation and I shared what I was and, and what I, you know, the type of person I was. And they might say to me later, which I, I felt great about, you know what? I didn't really like the police until I met you. And now I have a different attitude. And I, you know, it was one of the things I did throughout my career, Dean, and will continue to do is to promote the profession. We obviously don't want to see negative things happen with the police and, and bad cops. Nobody hates a, a bad cop more than a good cop. Um, we don't okay. condone any bad behavior or abuse or any racial uh, injustice, we, it, it just isn't supported. If it was, I would have done something a long time ago. Uh, we're regular people that go out to do a good job to try to, again, serve people in, in the many different uh, things that people need. I feel like I was a professional problem solver, um, try to be a great listener, someone that didn't have all the answers to people's problems. But over the course of your career, you don't have all the answers. Even as, as a supervisor, I didn't have all the laws in my head. And a lot of times I was reached to people that just came out of the academy for those things. <laughs> but, what I, but what I did have is, you know, you learn good common sense. You learn treat people as you want to be treated, as simple as that sounds. It's, it's just the way I always uh, approach my career. I approach people and spoke to people like that was a friend or that was my family member in another community. How would I want them to be spoken to by the police? Um, you know, and it was trying to enhance the life experience for all the different people that we deal with. And it's the type of profession, Dean, as I think you would attest to, if you love people, and I mean, not just people without problems, because we deal with a lot of people that come from difficult circumstances. If you love people of all uh, walks of life, of all colors, of all, you know, different backgrounds, and can empathize with people, and you can build a bridge and you care enough to do that with people, this is the ultimate profession to do that. It's the ultimate profession. If you don't like people, or you don't, you, you don't like dealing with difficult situations, do not get into this profession, because it, it's not for you. So, JK, really quick, um, Jim was uh, the gentleman that spoke earlier about his OIS and he just wants to say, if you ever want to meet for coffee and compare notes, he'll meet with you. I'm not too far from you. So, um, Jim, you can certainly send us a PM or a DM or whatever you call it here at, um, at, at Supply the Y. And we can certainly uh, broker that introduction. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. And that goes for anybody else out there that has any kind of, uh, of stressful incident. If you need to talk, we can certainly point you in the right direction or even you can reach out to us and we can make something happen. Maybe even put together a private Zoom that's not open to the public so people can kind of share some stories and meet. Because I do think that we need to support one another. Uh, we're better than we used to be, but we're not quite where we need to be as an industry yet. So uh, Jim, thank you for throwing that out there. JK, uh, any thoughts on that? No, thank you, Jim. Again, I've never spoken with anybody else that's been involved in the same incident, probably helped to do that. I just want to mention that because I think I failed to do that over the course of the time speaking, but my department couldn't have been more supportive of me after the incident. Um, and even to this day, I, you know, I still feel a member of the family. I don't feel like, you know, I'm retired when I walk in and see everybody from the chief down to the custodial staff that takes care of the building. Um, everybody's been wonderful. Um, they offered me, you know, uh, stress counselors right away. Uh, you know, I spoke to a few different people, um, uh, you know, over the past year and a half that were very helpful. And I appreciate them taking the time to do that. My department continues to be there for me today. 
Um, that day, you know, again, after the incident, my deputy chief arrived and I knew I had to relinquish my firearm. That was part of something I knew was going to have to happen. He immediately took control of the scene. Uh, you know, it, it, it was like just calmness. I mean, it was, you know, just told everybody what to do. Crime scene tape kind of was trying to bring me down a little bit, which was not easy to do. You know, I stripped my gun belt off, gave it to him. I ended up getting transported to UMass. Um, another thing I didn't mention, you know, the adrenaline. I remember going in and the, my, they took my blood pressure, which is pretty normal. And I think it was probably like 130 over 180. The doctor said to me, she was, hey, your blood pressure is high. Um, and I said, yeah, well, it's probably the incident because, and if you say it's high again, it's, it's probably going to get higher. I'm probably going to drop. But it was. And you're, fit, and you're a fit guy. You're a very fit guy, too. So it's not like. No, it's just your body does something. It, it, my body had never reacted like that before. Um, I'm right-handed, but my left hand, it shook, I think, for like three hours. I think it was just the adrenaline in my body that I, it just it took hours to go away. You know, so it was never felt it before. JK, this has just been an amazing, amazing account of something that, that again, is it's just not talked about. People need to understand what this is like for people that have to make the kind of decision and take the type of action you did. So we're down under to about four minutes. Um, tell us, do you have anything, any, what do you, what are you doing in your retirement? What are your plans? What causes are important to you? So it's, it's been a couple months, Dean. Um, I wanted to, most people that retired, uh, whether from the police profession or other professions, they said, just take some time, figure out what you want to do. Um, you know, and, I, and I've done that. I, you know, I'm, I get put on as a reserve officer. I've worked a few details. Uh, I'm trying to get involved in training with the MPTC. I'd like to impart some of my knowledge to try to shape uh, future police officers coming up through the ranks, try to uh, help them learn from things that I've learned over the course of my career to help them. And, you know, also, like I said, my mom, um, she needs she needs uh, my attention and I'm happy to do it. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. And quite the personality. I try to get her out on the boat. I'm fortunate to live on a lake. So I spent some time there. Uh, I've been trying to, again, um, you know, spend some time at the gym, keep my body going. You know, as you get older, it's, it doesn't get any easier. Um, so I've taken. Uh, yeah. So I, I've just been focused on trying on my wellness to try to, you know, get in shape, eat properly, take care of mom, you know, try to just take a step back again. You know, Dean, I can't tell you, you know, for police officers that, have retired or on the verge of retiring, I can tell them they will probably never look back as much as it's a dream career. Uh, but to know you never have to strap on that 25 pound belt and um, deal with all the, the, you know, the difficult calls that we have to deal with. And the, your, your life is your own when you wake up. Uh, there aren't too many Netflix movies or series I haven't seen. In a lot. I think in the last two months, I think I may have covered everything good on Netflix. Um, but it's just, it's, it's really been low stress. Uh, I, and I can't, you know, and, and I can't thank all my friends, my family around me that supported me, that are here tonight, that have taken the time to listen and to share their, uh, you know, th their support. You know, it's a difficult thing to speak about. I, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I'll probably never be able to speak about it and be uh, tear free. Because you put your life, your, all your emotion into everything that you do. And when it's something of this magnitude, Dean, it will never go away. So as much as I enjoy sharing the experience to try to open people's eyes to certain things or let them know that the, the human, uh, the humanness that police officers have that they may not see, you know, they drive by us with our sunglasses on and intimidating uniforms with the gun belt and all the different things on our belt that we hope we never have to use. We hope we can uh, talk ourselves through every situation with verbal judo. Uh, you know, we're just, we're just regular people. I mean, anybody that knows me, they, they know what I stand for. Um, you know, they know I'm out there for everybody. That's like I said, JK, you're incredible. Um, I'm so thankful uh, to have this platform because without it, I wouldn't have met you. Like, like you and I have never met before. It's important that people know, like, I mean, you're in Central Mass. I'm in Eastern Mass. We're in different parts of um, parts of my career. I'm in my 17th year. You were in your 31st year. And um, I'm honored. I just want to tell you that how much you've honored me that you chose this platform 
to be the one that you to to, to share your story with everybody. That that just you 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 honor me with your presence, John, and it, it's important that you know that. And and, uh, and I hope everybody out there that's watching this appreciates this. I'm I am I'm so humbled, and I'm so I'm just so thankful for people like you. No, I appreciate you having me, uh, Dean, and I do at some point. We we will meet for coffee, uh, but it, and I'll tell you why I came coffee? on. Co yeah, okay. no, yeah, we'll meet. I will meet up in person. Coffee, or, okay. Um, but I, I, I will just. I know we're, we're probably short on time, but I saw a couple of legends on this show: Chuck Tachara, the DT guru of Massachusetts, a kid that is as humble as they come, that is highly trained. Um, his most deadly thing that he knows is his, is his words. Uh, you know, absolute master of verbal judo. And the other legend, Dean Crisp. You know, I think I'm a talker. I'm an absolute mute. When it comes to Dean, you listen to him. He sounds like Tony Robbins. Uh, he's a lot like my chief. My chief is very charismatic, very well-spoken. Um, you hear him. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're just incredible speakers. And and when I saw him on your show, I saw you. I, I saw him, uh, the passion that you showed. I said that that's that's the form I would love to speak about this event on. Oh, I, again, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I hope everybody out there appreciates uh, this unbelievable peek behind the curtain that you just don't get very often and i hope people understand and they appreciate john putting himself out there and and him being willing to humanize his experience just so everybody can just get a little bit more of an understanding of what it's like to be in these situations so john thank you again for taking the time out to do this uh it's been an honor and Promise me you'll come back at some point in the future and we can talk more about the state of policing or anything else or even what it's like to be retired. There's a lot of cops out there that would love to know more about what that's like because uh, I think we all aspire to get to where you're at. Absolutely, Dean. Again, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you've learned something tonight. Um, you know, much appreciated. Thank you for the forum to be able to have the opportunity to speak about the event. Absolutely. One last thing. Please give your mother our love. All of us out there in uh, the Supply of the Y family, we are pulling for your mother. And we hope for her to be as comfortable as possible and for her to to have the uh, uh, the best possible time left. We want it to be uh, as comfortable as possible. I appreciate that very much. I know she does, too. And I just want to give a shout out to the Rose Monahan staff that takes care of her in Worcester. They, they treat her like uh, it's their mother. And She's she's in great hands, and I, I can't run, recommend that place anymore. It's an absolute godsend. All right, folks. Well, we've reached the end again. Thank you for putting up with some of the uh, some of the difficulties that we've had tonight. It's it's one of those things where uh, we try to hammer it out as best we can. But we thank everybody for sticking with us. Keep tuning in. Keep sharing these episodes. If you like the content, see below. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We are on all the major podcast channels. Keep sharing, keep liking, and as always, hashtag supply the why. We appreciate you. Have a good night.